you are now tuned into Virtually I'm Possible Presents Lazy Learning Land Podcast, where we teach teachers how to be lazier, yet more effective to increase student performance, but decrease teacher burnout and stress. I'm Estat, your hostess that always gives you the mostest while doing the least. Today's episode is sponsored by Virtually I'm Possible's Teacher Pay Teacher Store, where you can get secondary math activities and games that are color changing, self checking, no prep, and no grading. Visit Virtually I'm Possible on Teacher Pay Teachers for all your lazy learning tool needs. Now for today's episode. Hey everybody, thank you for coming back. We have an amazing show for you today. Today we are going to talk about child labor in the classroom. In order to be one of the laziest, most effective teacher ever, you have to incorporate law number one, which is to believe in child labor. So let's get into it. Now, I say child labor, not sweatshops, people. By no means am I advocating for sweatshops or for you to be abusing your students with some type of physical, mental, or emotional labor. What I'm referring to is actually the culture of child labor by having your students to do more work in the classroom than you, the actual teacher, does. Having classroom roles is just one form of child labor that I do believe in. And, you know, when I also say child labor, I also refer to teachers refer, reframing, refraining from teaching and reteaching. Because you guys, you know, we get up there and we say things until we're blue in the face and only like one additional kid actually learns, learns it sometimes. But a part of the culture of child labor is having your students to work collaboratively in order to teach each other. And in my personal classroom, I have what's designated as wizards to do a lot of my reteaching. And for me, you know, I zero in once I teach a lesson for the first time, you know, my number one job is to step into the role of a facilitator and to stop doing that teacher led so much. So, you know, That's in a nutshell what this episode is going to be about. Just how can you create this culture of child labor in your classroom where your students are doing more than you, where they're doing the reteaching and where you get to be more of that facilitator. So I've got four ways to implement child labor into your classroom. So don't touch that dial. Stay put. I promise I won't disappoint. Okay, so. How to create that culture of child labor in your classroom. The number one thing you want to do is to get volunteers for classroom roles. I am a secondary math teacher and I literally have some qualms about being on the secondary level sometimes. Because when I look back at the structures of the elementary level, I seriously wonder, why do we even cut out some of these things? And one of those things that I have a qualm about being cut out is classroom jobs. Now recall the days in the elementary level when every student gets a chance to be the board eraser, the line leader, paper passer, paper collector, door holder, teacher's helper, 
and even get a chance to take the class pet home for the weekend. The possibilities at the elementary level for how you could just really feel responsible and feel involved were endless. But then we get to the secondary level, middle school, high school, and for some reason we turn the tables and we put all the responsibility back on the teacher. And what's crazy is the amount of students that we see every day has been multiplied anywhere between six to eight times more than what an elementary teacher teaches in a day. Because in elementary, they keep their same sets of students most of the time. You get in middle school and high school, these kids are changing classes. So you're teaching six to eight periods a day, depending on how your structure is in your in your specific county or district. But on top of that, not only has our student load increased at the secondary level, but we are also responsible for all other nuances, be they big or small. And this can really just be undoubtedly taxing. There's so many other things that we have to worry about especially at the secondary level that the principal wants us to do this. We got this drill now. We got this, 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 and that going on. And we are responsible for all of those nuances on top of being responsible for teaching our students. Now, personally, I have used classroom roles in a few ways to help create that culture of child labor. Some years I have assigned roles and the students change jobs every week or two. But truthfully, it kind of got to the point sometimes where I didn't remember to change the roles until one particular kid would complain. And when they complain, it's because they're waiting for their turn to get a specific job. And I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, it's time to switch it up. Some of the rules that I use in my classroom to help take the load off of me, and feel free to still and use any of these if you don't already do them, I highly suggest that you do because you will literally save yourself so much energy. I use a door opener so I don't have to always constantly stop in the middle of teaching or always have to go across the classroom from my desk and get up every two seconds to get the door. I use paper passers, paper collectors. I do have a secretary so it's a student that gets up and answers my classroom phone if I happen to be helping other students or I'm at the board teaching. I have a materials manager that ensures my class materials are properly accounted for and stored. So if that day we use scissors or we use glue or we did the whiteboards with the dry erase markers, they just make sure that all of my materials are accounted for and properly put away before the end of the period. A board eraser, I have a smart board in my classroom, yes, but I have two dry erase boards in my room as well. And so I have students that for whatever reason, they really just enjoy being the person to be able to erase the board. Okay, that's fine. I also have a tech specialist, which is a student that helps with tech issues. I am privileged to be at a district that we are a one-to-one district. So every student does have either a laptop or a tablet that's assigned to them from the district. And so we are a one-to-one school. Every student has their own device. And I also have a couple of desktops in my classroom. Yes, I still work in the hood. That's my district. That's a public school. So I don't teach at a private school in the hood. It's a public school. And we have, you know, access to that stuff where I'm located. I will say, though, that having these rules has really helped to increase my classroom buy-in. Not rules, these roles have helped to increase the classroom buy-in. And at the same time, it really does allow me to conserve some extra energy 
Because I just, again, I really don't think as teachers, we think about how much energy it takes to pass out 30 handouts for six periods. That's 180 pieces of paper. How many, you know, those steps, they add up, the move, the movements, all that stuff adds up. And I just really don't think we pay attention to how draining the little mundane tasks can be. So if you can create that culture of child labor by allowing your students to have classroom roles, it will help to save you energy. That energy will add up by the end of the day. Promise. All right, so on to the second way that you guys can create that culture of child labor in your classroom is to build that culture of collaboration the first week of school. Now, okay, hold your horses before you try to, you know, close this out on me because you're listening to this and you're halfway through the school year or you, you know, towards the end of the school year, this is still good knowledge. And it's, as long as it's not like the last couple of weeks of school, this is really, it's really not too late to do this. Um, you are able to still accomplish this culture of child labor that you seek. Even if you didn't start building it at the very beginning of the school year, I will say it is much easier to do it at the beginning of the school year because all of your students want you to like them. They're on their very, very best behavior. They are like super sponges. They are willing to do almost anything that you ask them to do in that first week to two weeks of school. Implementing this strategy later in the year, it is still possible, but you may be met with a little bit more resistance. And that's just mostly because students have become accustomed to how your class is one way. And most humans in general just don't like change. So if you're coming in there trying to switch things up and they're used to it being one way, they're going to be like, but I like the old way better. You know, you're going to get a little bit of resistance and pushback, but just being consistent can really pay off. In the first weeks of school, I tend to make sure that I have my students do different collaborative activities. I want to say I do my first collaborative activity either the second or third day of school. I start implementing them. And one of my favorites is this, I call it over the river. It's some math riddle that I found via Google. And the number of kids and adults may change, but it's something like eight adults and two kids in one boat and Two kids can be in the boat at one time. A kid and an adult can be in the boat at the same time, but two adults can't be in the boat at the same time. How many trips will it take to get everybody to the other side of the river? And I use this, like I said, the second or third day of school to start modeling how I expect to see and hear the students collaborate, work together, ask questions, get input, so on and so forth. And when I started that early, it really does make a difference in the upcoming weeks and really in the rest of the school year. Another part to fostering that culture of collaboration is you really do have to hold firmly to your expectations and not accept anything less. I mean, we all know, you know, students, they're going to push boundaries. They're going to see just how much they can get away with doing or get away with not doing. And once they see that, okay, you know, this person, they're really not going to give up on this collaboration thing. I think I just might as well suck it up and give it a try. Um, it, you know, just staying firm on your expectations and accepting nothing less. Laying the foundation for this culture of collaboration does require you to be on your feet a lot more at the very beginning when you are implementing it, just simply because you want to be able to go from group to group 
listen, watch, provide them with feedback. Hey, that was really great the way you asked that. Or, hey, you guys are working really well together. Or, oh, I'm, I'm hearing some negativity, some things that I'm not trying to hear. So it does require a little bit at the front end when you're trying to incorporate collaboration, that culture of collaboration. But it is definitely worth it long term. It will save you lots of energy down the road. Don't shy away if you do find yourself having to go group to group and actually coach them through the process of talking to human beings. Because remember, this generation that we're teaching, most of these kids were born with digital devices in their hands. So human to human interaction is very foreign to them. They will literally text their parents and they're like two rooms over. So you're asking a lot of them to look people in the face and actually work together. So just keep that in mind before you pull all of your hair out. It's going to take some coaching. Other parts of just building that culture of collaboration is just making sure that your students are scaffolded and taught how to properly ask each other for help, how to properly give help to another student, how to sort it out if there is a difference of opinions or a difference of, you know, One person thinks it should be done this way. One person thinks it should be done that way. So you have to coach them through also how to deal with potential conflict inside of the collaborative groups as well. For more tips on how to help your students to collaborate effectively, make sure you check out my post on, yes, I expect you to talk to humans without a device. Remember, Rome was not built in one day and neither will collaboration. But the sooner you start, the more practice your students will have, the more you stick with it, the more it will pay off. Anytime you expect collaboration to take place in your classroom, you must tell your students exactly what you expect. You will need to sound like a broken record. Never assume that they remember from collaboration activity to collaboration activity. Give them examples of what is and is not okay. And just prepare yourself mentally again to have to repeat yourself at the beginning of those collaborative activities. And also keep in mind that from time to time, you may have to coerce them into interacting with one another for a while until they get that, until you get that full buy-in. I will say the more you have your students collaborate, definitely the easier it is to get them to fall in line. So just try to be consistent. Give them at least two collaborative tasks in each school week. And when I say collaborative task, it doesn't have to take the entire period, but just some points, at least twice a week, have them turn to a partner, work in a small group, complete some task, have them have to go ask other students for help, so on and so forth, just to keep the consistency there. And just watch it soar. The more consistent you are and the more you stick to your guns, the better your culture of collaboration will be which will then definitely improve your culture of child labor. Ooh, now, honey child, this one right here is probably my favorite when it comes to child labor, and it is get you some wizards. Yes, get you some wizards. There are certain days when my students are practicing, and on these days, my rule of thumb is once I have at least two students who have gotten that question correct, I am no longer dealing with that problem. 
No longer am I answering questions about that problem. No longer am I checking their final answers. My name, little Daryl, leave me alone, as that famous comedian said, right? Um, But I am still available to help them with other problems that do not already have two wizards yet. If there are two wizards for that problem, the expectation is the students will go to one of those two wizards to get their needs met. So that's to ask their questions and to get their work checked. Usually I project like a Google sheet that has all the problem numbers on it with two spots next to each number. I fill in the wizard's names next to each problem that they're earned. And again, it's just projected on my smart board. Warning. Okay, I got to give you guys this disclaimer because when I first started using this, it really just threw me off at how the dynamic of my classroom totally flipped. And I started to see different personality traits of some of my students. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know you could get like that. But um, I will warn you that posting the wizards list has side effects that brings out the competitor in your students. Side effects may include 100% class engagement, loud academic conversation, shrieks of excitement, strategic sabotage to slow down another student, students working faster than you have ever seen before. I mean, I'm really not kidding. I literally saw some drastic changes in some of my students when I posted the wizards list. You will see certain students become highly engaged, trying to get their name on the board the most. Students that don't normally ask questions are trying because they want people to come to them for help with the problem because they want to feel smart. Hey, my motto is whatever works. So once I saw the difference when I did this for the first time, I was like, whoa, I have to do this more often because again, you heard the side effects in the high pitched squeaky voice. Those side effects were real things that showed up in, again, I work in the hood, I work in the Title I schools, I work with the bottom 25%, the lowest performing math students, and literally those were some of the side effects to posting that wizard board. So if you've never done wizards before, I suggest you get it done. A culture of child labor ensures that we don't have to go to the board and explain ourselves over and over again. Remember, if there's even one student in the class that has that answer correct, then have one of those students come to the board and explain. Yes, I know that we have some introverted personalities, people that are very shy. They don't, you know, like to be in front of large groups, but don't give them an out. Hold their hand, scaffold them, give them baby steps, build them up to it. Don't give any child an out, but build up their level of comfort with it and Again, you will just see your classroom start to soar when you are putting these kids in charge of helping other kids learn. If you would like to know some implementation strategies, see my post on collaborate or else. Basically, that post is on how do you get those shy, more introverted students or those students that are really giving you a lot of resistance How do you get them to buy in? And kind of like the culminating finale part of this portion for number three is 
just make sure that you are giving your students really good notes when you teach them a topic so that you can always refer them back to their notes. And when they're working together with their partners and in these small groups, they have something to guide them and to help them that they can bounce ideas off of. Oh, the notes say this. Oh, you know, this is this color. That means this. You know, it gives them just something to be able to have more conversation and start inferencing and putting things together. So again, when I teach a lesson, I teach it one time. I go to the board. I do, I do direct instruction for that lesson one time. But when I say during that period, I give my students 200% effort. I give them multiple examples, gradual release, generic steps for solving those types of problems, graphic organizers. We do vocabulary. I throw in some videos. I do some color coding. You name it, it's in there. But I do this because I know moving forward, my students will be working harder than me. And I really want them to have some good stuff to go back and look at. But just note that building in gradual release into your lessons when you are doing those direct instruction days really provides you with a few moments to yourself each class period. Because when the students are doing the we do and the you do portion of gradual release, that frees you up to kind of just walk around and listen. It's not all eyes on you. You can take some breather moments. So even if there are some periods, especially when you're doing direct instruction, where that class period is a little bit more teacher-centered, still find a way to put the work back on the students at some point during that period to allow you some moments to just woosa. All right, so number four is let your students come to the board. Some teachers that have this whole control freak gene, some of y'all may be breaking out in hives right now or being like, this chick crazy. And it may be a little bit more of a difficult one for you because it does require you to relinquish some control. You can't control everything without burning yourself out. Okay? However, I do promise that this one is very rewarding. So say, for instance, I'll just give you an example of one of the ways that I have my students come to the board. I give them a bell ringer, you know, most days out of the week and I've given it to them. They've tried it. Now I'm circulating to look to see who got it right, who was on track, so on and so forth. Just kind of getting a formative assessment of what's going on with my kids. And when I see that I have you know, at least one student that has the work and the answer correct. And sometimes it's not everything. Maybe they got most of the work correct and I still have that student come up, but then I chime in where things got rough. But at any rate, I have a student that got it correct to come up to the board. And I just genuinely, generally say to them, hey, bring your paper up, Copy down what you put on your paper and just kind of explain, you know, the steps that you took. And if there's anything that needs to be cleared up, I will speak after you. So don't worry, I got your back. And usually it takes them about 30 seconds to, to give it a shot. Again, if your students, this is for my control freaks who are just like, but what, oh my gosh, what if they say something wrong? Oh my gosh, what if they tell this other student something that's just a totally not true? It's okay. The first thing you do 
is you say, hey, thank you such and such for coming to the board and helping everyone out. We really appreciate it. We're a family in here. I did want to address something that was said. Uh, you know, they said that right here it was supposed to be a positive too, but let's take a look back up. You know, a negative times a positive is a negative. So we just want to make sure that you guys have that and make the correction on the board and let your students fix it. You didn't embarrass the student. The student feels really good about coming up and helping. You just kind of chimed in and piggybacked off of what they did. But those two or three sentences you just did was way better than you going to the board, writing the problem, showing all the work and explaining. And then don't forget repeating that six to eight periods a day for that day. Okay, so this approach definitely saves you from having to rework the same problem over and over again. And this strategy can really be handy when you guys are playing review games. Take that same concept, but if they're working in collaborative groups playing a game, if one group got the work and the answer correct, let's say you're using whiteboards or you have another way of seeing their work and they get it, then you tell them to come up and put their work up on the smart board, whiteboard, whatever you have in your classroom and explain to the class, if every group didn't get it right, then we need to go over this problem because there's some misconceptions. And then you just have your students to copy it down in their notebooks as you guys uh, go and continue through the review. And again, for those people who are thinking about those introverts, Give those introverts a little bit more encouragement, a little bit more of emotional support, some guidance, hold their hands, and just help them through the process. But don't take no for an answer. Get it as, you know, build your way up. And maybe one week, they'll only come write it on the board, but they won't explain it. And then the next week, you just keep building on it, but don't give them an all, a full on out. And to reiterate, the more you do this, the more you are consistent with having your students come to the board, the more it becomes a part of the culture. It's a, Now it's not just in the culture, it's the expectation. It's what we do in here. The more your students will buy in. And when you get new students, they fall in line as well because they say, hey, everybody else is doing it. Guess I will too. But all in all, Teacher burnout is real and anything that you can do to buy yourself a few minutes of sanity every class period will truly add up at the end of your school day. Your students actually want to be helpful to you, so allow them to have those classroom roles. Your students also like to feel smart, so allow them to help other students. These methods, again, require you to relinquish some bits of control, but if you can coach your students on your expectations and you stay firm in your expectations, then these can prove to be very productive for you. Part of conserving your energy is allowing your much more youthful students to burn some of their extra energy. So if I got to sum up this whole podcast episode, find ways to let them young bucks burn their energy so us old books can save some energy. Creating a culture of child labor puts the burden of that physical exertion on your students. Because remember, you've got 101 other things to worry about than passing out 180 pieces of paper that day. Simultaneously, while your students are doing the physical exertion, you are using just your mental exertion 
to facilitate. Once the culture has been set in your classroom, that culture of child labor, the culture of collaboration, your students will look forward to those opportunities to help you and help their peers. Long term, you will feel less exhausted and be able to show up better for yourself and for anyone you encounter throughout your day. So, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Virtually Impossible Presents Lazy Learning Land. I hope that you have found some interesting ways to incorporate child labor into your classroom. Tell me in the comments section, which one of these ideas was your favorite today? Which one do you feel like you can jump in and implement right away? And maybe which one kind of makes you a little apprehensive? Remember that there are strength in lazy. So be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, my blog on virtuallyimpossible.net, and our social media platforms, Pinterest and Instagram, so you can feel at home among other lazy learners. Until next episode, remember to live long in lazy and never, ever work too hard.